we have a, a, a phenomenal panel here tonight. Before we start, I'd like to introduce them all. Uh, to my right, uh, Dagoberto Gilb is the author, most recently, of the novel The Flowers, which was selected as one of the best books of the year by the San Francisco Chronicle. He's anthologized widely and a recipient of many awards, including the Guggenheim Fellowship and the Whiting Writers Award. His fiction and nonfiction have appeared in a wide range of magazines, including New Yorker, The New Yorker, Harper's, The Three Penny Review, and The Washington Post. Born in LA, he now lives in Austin, Texas, uh, we forgive him, that's okay, uh, and is the writer-in-residence and executive director of Centro Victoria, the Center for Mexican-American Literature and Culture at the University of, H University of Houston, Victoria. To his right, Michael Jaime Becerra, a uh, lovely man I just met, and his, and his, 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 new, br his new bride of, uh, what, three months ago, dude? Fantastic, because uh, uh, Michael is a native of, of a town in what we call in Southern California, El Monte. Uh, he is a graduate of UC Riverside's creative writing department. His early work was first collected in 1996 as Look Back and Laugh for the Chicano Chapbook series edited by Gary Soto, a fine uh, Mexican-American poet. He is author of a limited edition collection of prose poems entitled uh, <clears throat> The Estrellitas Off Peck Road and a collection of interrelated short stories entitled Every Night is Ladies' Night. Uh, and, far, and to our far right, the inimitable Mr. Daniel Hernandez. He is a Mexico-based journalist who blogs at danielhernandez.typepad.com. <laughs> Your blog is called, the name is called Intersections, yeah. right? Yeah. Just, just Google Daniel Intersections and you're there. Uh, he's currently working on a book on the city's youth culture. He has previously been a reporter for the Los Angeles Times and the LA Weekly covering arts, politics, and culture. His parents hail from Tijuana, and he was born in San Diego. He is a dual citizen of Mexico and the United States. Um, I wanted to start with just a brief comment about what it is we're here to talk about. Um, we tend to think in terms of identities as being fixed, identities as being whole, uh, Americans are this, Mexicans are this, Germans are this. We all behave in some sort of stereotypical and, 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 and simply defined fashion. But, but far from having a fixed identity, uh, Mexican-Americans have always struggled with a confusing and sometimes painful collision of competing identities. Uh, the Mexican-American experience has been characterized by a mixture of conflict and cooperation between the newcomers and the long-established, uh, between Mexican and Anglo-American cultures, uh, between English and Spanish, between past and future, between immigrants and their more acculturated children. At any given moment in the United States, millions of Mexican-Americans are living at varying distances, uh, physically and psychologically and cultural, culturally from the immigrant experiences and from Mexico itself. Um, so this is, this is a, a vast population which, which has been made up of many waves. The first Mexican-Americans were clearly were not immigrants at all, but, but became Americans by, by virtue of conquest and annexation. By, by 1890, so they were native-born. By 1890, the majority of Mexican-origin people in the United States were, had recently come from Mexico uh, and were foreign-born. In 1920, the majority of Mexican-Americans uh, in, 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 in the United States were immigrants. By 1940, the majority of Mexican-Americans were native-born, were U.S.-born. By 1970, the, majority, the vast majority of adult Mexican-Americans were third-generation Mexican-Americans. That means their grandparents came. But by 1990, again, it flipped again, and the majority of adults in Los Angeles County and in the United States of Mexican origin were again Mexican-born. So we have this most, and, and it's just, it's just it's a brief comparison, most immigrant experience to the United States have a very simple beginning, middle, and end. There is a point at which you can say that children of Norwegian immigrants started to speak more, more English than Norwegian than not. You can find there's a middle point where you can say there were more native, more U.S. born than foreign born, and the culture shifts. For Mexican-Americans, it's not that easy. The process isn't that linear. It's confusing, it's conflicted, and as, as I've said, it's, it's foreign-born dominates one decade, the U.S.-born dominates another. Right now, the trend in the United States is that the fastest-growing portion of the Mexican-American population is second and third generation. So it's not immigrants anymore that are creating most of, of the growth in the, the Mexican-American population. It's their children and even their grandchildren. 
Now, having said that, I'd like to open up uh, to and read something that Dagoberto wrote for Harper's Magazine in uh, 2001. And, <laughs> and I thought we, we and, and this is such a, this is such a, this is a sort of a cerebral question, but it's also a really personal and cultural and, and family question that, and they, they, they all tackle these in really nuanced and really intimate ways, I think. And I wanted to start with Dagoberto's two paragraphs, if I may. I was born and raised Pocho, Americanized, and I didn't know much more about Mexico than most. It was where the people who were cooks, custodians, and construction workers were from. La gente who ironed and sewed and served food, who weren't afraid of the daylight sun or the nighttime dark. It was Trio Los Panchos and Vicky Carr and Vicente Fernandez ballads, tacos y frijoles and chile picante and con queso. It was familias in parks on the weekend, cooking and at mass on Sunday, pretty little daughter in white chiffon dress and glossy black plastic shoes and blue ribbons in the hair. It was, with, it was a mom with a long trenza wearing a flowery pink dress that reached the knees, clutching her baby's hand, a dad behind them with a big silver belt buckle, blue eyes and a western shirt with snap buttons and reptile boots and straw cowboy hat looking both sweet and strong. Mexico was a story to me, one that I knew not like a Mexican novella, but like an American comic book. Adventure, love, honor, betrayal, Huero y Moreno. It was a bright poster in a Mexican restaurant up the street from East LA to El Paso and north and south and east and west of those. Dagoberto Gil, please welcome him. If you could expand on, and tell us what was going, what, how did that come to you? And first of all, what, how was it that Harper's asked a Mexican-American to come to Mexico and, 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 and talk about and explain Mexico, a land that was foreign to you in many, in many instances? Um, tell us about that process. Well, yeah, you asked two good questions. And the one that's more interesting is that Harper's didn't. It's actually another Mexican-American story. Actually, Texas Monthly asked for that piece and um, paid for me to go, but when I turned it in, they didn't like it. <laughs> and they didn't like it because, you know, I mean, my theory would be is it was smart. <laughs> and um, and they, they felt that they should fix it. And I'm like, well, why would you fix it? And the reason I published, this, this all sounds so snooty, <laughs> um, I, I published in the New Yorker, and they were wanting to, they were, liked me suddenly because, you know, before I was just doggo meat, and um, suddenly they wanted me, and, um, but then when I gave it to them, they didn't want it, so Harper's was very interested and took it immediately, I, I'd known the guy, the literary publisher, but okay, now where the story comes from, you know, I grew up, my mother was a, a Mexican immigrant, illegal, and um, as they would say, and, uh, and she crossed so, you know, years, like in the, I think, she, I think she had to be in the 20s, you know, in the mid-20s. I actually wished I'd, she around, I would have asked her. I just, it's these questions that you don't ask. And she grew up, my grandmother was the mistress of this owner in downtown Los Angeles, this man that owned a, an industrial laundry, and she grew up in the, in the little Casa Chica next to the... So my mother was the, the daughter <laughs> of this man's mistress. And so my, and my father was the, you know, so el mero, mero, el mero chingon of the uh, industrial laundry. He was a white guy who spoke Spanish. He was a Marine. You know, he was the guy that ran the Mexicans and blacks. And so I, and then that was my encounter with the world was this industrial laundry downtown Los Angeles, which is, was maybe 70% um, Mexican, Mexican nationals. And, well, not always Mexicans, um, from Latin America, from the Central American countries. And black people, a few people that were the Anglos. is very much LA of the time, uh, a front which was very Anglo. All the truck drivers from the industrial laundry were Anglo, and uh, all the workers were either black or, or Spanish-speaking. So I, I, I came into that world and actually didn't grow up with my own father except when I worked. 
and I would know my father, which was very much like the cartoon that was Mexico, was my father was sort of a cartoon, you know, a character, a superhero, or a, a one of the superhero bad guys or something. <laughs> When, when, did you, when did you first visit Mexico? When did you, when did you first sort of realize that the, Mexican, the Mexico in your head was exactly that, was in your head, that it was a, a real place with real people? Well, you know, I'm, you know I, I hang around with these, um, again, snootier writers that have come from these great places, and I'm more like, you know, I think more ordinary like most of us here. We, I really didn't get to go anywhere. I mean, at, going out of L.A. was a huge you know, added a huge dimension to life, and I didn't do that. Until I was much older, people would say, oh, I went to Mexico, I went to these places, and, uh, you know, I'd been, I'd say, oh, well, I've been to Mexicali. You know, that's basically all I'd ever, you know, gone to Tijuana, I've gone to Mexicali, you know, that's about it, you know, what can I say? And, um, but it was much later in my life, as a writer, I got to, I got to do that. I didn't get to do that before that, but, yeah, it was a fiction. It was just a fiction. Michael writes a lot about his hometown of El Monte, or as recent immigrants call it, El Monte. And, and Michael's very, um, uh, he's very careful about representing Mexican-Americans as he sees them and, and allowing Mexicans in his, in his books and in, in his stories to speak in Spanish. And he's developed a way to, to, to write in Spanish in his English prose that, in a way that he doesn't have to translate, that it's contextualized and the meaning is there. And, and something that I read an interview with Michael that was uh, a couple years ago in which he, he confesses um, that, that the, the Vietnamese woman who owned the, the liquor store down the street where he grew up spoke better Spanish than he did. And yet, and yet Michael negotiates Mexican-American identity and Mexican identity and, and the new arrivals in such a, in a beautiful way. And I'm, yeah. I want to take us to that. Take us to, go ahead. You'll be jumping. I mean, that's absolutely true, that, that idea that, that, that the Vietnamese lady that ran the tiendita could speak to all the kids who were speaking Spanish much more clearly than I could. Um, and now that experience, I think, is, is, is a true Chicano experience. It's not an uncommon one. Um, you can see my name right here. My name right in front of me is Michael Jaime Becerra. And even though when I'm at home, my mother calls me Miguel. Uh, and so there's, at some point there was a decision, we're going to put on the birth certificate, the legal document that's going to represent this person in the world. What name are we going to give them, right? And my parents grew up in a Los Angeles that was not very friendly to Mexican people. Uh, my mother grew up, the high school that my mom went to, you were hit if you spoke Spanish. This is in the 60s and in the 70s. And so coming out of that environment, I'm born in 1973. It comes time to put the name on the birth certificate, they put Michael. Even though my dad calls me hijo, my mom calls me Miguel. Um, and so I'm definitely a product of, of that, that mixture. Um, I grew up, uh, we, as a Chicano, we have sort of access to two to, to, to languages, and I grew up speaking English predominantly. I learned to speak Spanish. It was, it was actually, this is a very clear memory for me, an early memory. You're talking about sort of your encounters with Mexico or, or visiting Mexico. And one of my earliest memories was sort of being at my tia's house in Chihuahua and Happy Days was on. And I knew Happy Days because I'm like four years old at this point. And I recognize Happy Days to, from Fonzie and all the other stuff <laughs> from seeing it at home. But it was in Spanish, right. right? And it was this episode of Happy Days where Fonzie uh, was very worried because Pinky Tuscadero, who's his girlfriend, <laughs> was in a, a, a crash-up derby, and she got injured. And all this was going on in Spanish, and I understood it. Like, it clicked. I was able to follow what they were talking about, and I was able to understand the story. And then at that point, right around that point, was when I was able to understand what my grandma was talking about and what my relatives were talking about in Spanish. And my grandmother became the person that I spoke Spanish to. Um, she's still a very influential person in my life. Um, we would, she lived in lots of different places in L.A., and in, but for the, the majority of my childhood, she lived in Rosarito, in, in Baja, and so we would go visit her twice a month, spend the weekend down there. We would spend big portions of the summer down there. And I had a life down there with you know, kids and friends, and that's where I practiced my Spanish for the most part. The kids that I grew up with in, with in school, we were all first or second generation kids. And we all came out of that environment where you speak English, and so English was our predominant uh, language. Before we move on to Daniel, I, I wonder if you could tell us, you described the, the, the El Monte of your childhood. Yeah. And you still live in the town. I still live there. Actually, I, I absolutely still live there. Um, this is, I've, I've been there for 30-some years. Uh, I should say that, that I say uh, El Monte is a first-generation Chicano person, not El Monte, because the person who taught me to say the city where I'm from was white. <laughs> <laughs> All my, uh, my, I had 
in the six years that I was in elementary school, my kindergarten teacher was black, my sixth grade teacher was black, and everybody else was white. There was no Latin presence in my elementary school, very minor Latin presence. And so I remember very clearly the lesson, you know, very early on there's a lesson when you learn how to sign an envelope, right? You put your, your address, your name, your address, your zip code. Um, and it was El Mani, California, 91732, and that's how I learned to say El Mani. Now, on the other hand, there are words that came into my vocabulary that didn't come in through white people. So there's the fruit mango, right? And when I say I talk about mango, I talk about mango. And people who don't speak Spanish say, what are you talking about? <laughs> and I say, oh, I'm sorry, mango. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying now. Or even next door, the city next door to, to Almani is, is La Puente. And it's called La Puente. It should be El Puente, but it's La Puente. But I say La Puente is sort of with the Spanish pronunciation because then it come through me through a white person. Uh, and so that's sort of that's been my experience. So, but but since the time you grew up, you there many Mexicans have moved. To oh your yeah, hometown. it's it, it's it's evolved completely. And what's the status of Spanish now in your hometown? It's predominant. Uh, Spa- Spanish is predominant. I go to King Taco around the corner from my house, and I learn Spanish. <laughs> so right. so you have even within the blocks where you were raised. Yeah. I imagine Spanish is first of all there's no there's less hostility toward it. Absolutely less. And hostility. you use it more than. Than you ever used it before. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, it's common transact. I go to my grocery store, I speak Spanish to everybody at the grocery store. I go to, to get dinner, I speak Spanish to everybody. The restaurant that we're all excited about right now in Almani is Semitas Don Paco. Like, like that's, <laughs> so and Spanish is much more predominant than, than it, it once was. But that's something that has changed over the last 10, 15 years. Now, let's get to Daniel, who has an entirely distinct experience. As, as millions of people go north, uh, of go north of the border, Daniel went south. And Daniel uh, has, has, is, 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 is uh, one of the Chicano writers who can speak and read Spanish better than probably any other Mexican-American writer. Uh, your El País piece was, uh, you wrote that in Spanish. Yeah, I did, this, with, with the help of my mom on well, the Okay, phone. all right. <laughs> See, that, that's, a, that's a lovely admission, confession there. Uh, <laughs> but you've gone the other way, and you've gone to embrace sort of Mexicanidad in, in, its, in its most hardcore urban form. And what I, what I, I, looked at, I was looking up some stuff when we found out Daniel was going to be on the panel, and I, I just uh, looked at an interview in which he calls himself a proud pocho. So tell us what pocho means, what it meant then, and what it means to you now, and how can you be a proud one? Well, it was something that you didn't want to be. I mean, I think even... What did it mean? It meant that you were Mexican and visually, and, and, and you were defined as Mexican by the, the mainstream culture in the U.S., but Mexicans didn't see you that way. And, and pe- recent immigrants and people who, in Mexico would just call you a pocho. They listened to the way you spoke Spanish, and you'd be, oh, you're just a pocho. You know? And I remember very distinctly there was... Um, in college, I mean, not, not so long ago, there was this, uh, I met a girl from Mexico City and she was punk and she was dressed in all black and she had studded cuffs and she was redheaded and blue eyed and just seemed so cool. And I was so happy to meet her, you know, just randomly. She was just kind of like a, a gutter punk in Berkeley. And, <laughs> and I told her, I was, hey, I'm, I'm from, you know, I'm, I'm Mexican too. I'm from, my parents are from Tijuana. I'm from San Diego. She's like, oh, you're not really Mexican. And she was just like a flat out denial of my Mexicanness, which I thought I had because that's how everyone saw me. Right. And that's how everyone saw my brothers and sisters and my family. You know, we'd go to, my, my, we'd go to Coronado Beach in San Diego, you know, to not Imperial Beach, but my mom was like, no, we're going to the nice beach. We're going to Coronado. It's a public beach. Even if we just take a tub of oranges, of sliced oranges for our lunch, and there would be times when people would tell us to get out of there and, and surfer guys and stuff. And that was still, you know, not early 1990s. So it was... It was, I think, a cha- I think I took it as a challenge. Initially, I thought, oh, man, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm never going to be anything. So I, I decided, well, why don't I go and find out for myself where I fit? And so I decided to, to move down here and, and, and figure it out. So, so Mexican-Americanness has often been described as the, the experience of being not this and not that. And, and any, all of you have written about the American experience and, and the Mexican-American experience in particular. And in order to sort of define what you are on one side, you have to learn what you, to learn what you are as an American and what it means, you almost have to learn what it means to be a Mexican on some, or your version of Mexicanness. So what have you learned, you said, what have you learned about your Mexicanness in your year in Mexico City? Well, I think, um, um, one of the things that I also had said in that interview is, uh, you know, they asked me, can they tell that you're from California or that you're not, you know, from Mexico City or from Mexico? Well, I think that the actual question was, could they tell you're a pocho from a mile away? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, of course, man. Of course. Like, 
You know, they, they can just, I, I don't know what it is. They can read it on you. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's this. Do you walk this, on the balls of your feet? Or? No, I mean, I try to just like say, all right, well, I'm here too now. And this is my city too now. And um, I know I live in this neighborhood and I, and I get in the same potentially dangerous cab that you do. And I eat the same potentially dangerous tacos that you do. And, you know, and now I, I belong here, you know, just like anyone else. And I think that there are more of us um, who are doing that. Um, most of the Mexican-Americans and, and proud pochos that I meet are like recently deported um, prison, pr- prison inmates. I mean, guys who serve their um, prison terms in California's, in the California straight prison system and then are deported to Mexico, even though they have no connection to Mexico and have never really been there, don't speak Spanish. And I'm always so shocked and really kind of hurt by the enormous discrimination that they that they face there because they're super shaved head, they're tatted up up to here. Discrimination at the hands of whom? At the, at, at the hand of, me, of, of, of Mexicanos, of Mexicans. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's one of the things that, I, that, that I'm writing about right now. I mean, meeting one guy who's like, I can't get a job here. The only thing I can do is open a door at a cantina because as soon as I walk into a Mexican establishment, I am like the, the, the dangerous cholo, the criminal who's sort of dumped back onto Mexico and, and, and who doesn't belong. So I think mm-hmm. that there is still sort of some, I think, I guess, work to be done in order to sort of accept Mexican-Americans as part of this larger diaspora within Mexico. And that's something I think, at least this event, I think is helping out. You know? now, now, Michael, you, you how, how often do you come to Mexico? And, I say maybe once a year. Once um, a year? I was in Guadalajara last February with my, my wife's family. My wife's family is from Guadalajara. They're from Matoyac, which is the pueblo outside of Guadalajara. And over the years, have you have you experienced any any differences in the way you're treated as a Mexican American, or and, and, uh, and any differences in the way you view Mexico as you've grown older? I, I, I would suppose so. I mean, my family, my dad's side is from Chihuahua, and, and um, I feel very connected to to that side of my family. I'm there in Chihuahua maybe once every year and a half or so, uh, and I spend some time in the city of Chihuahua. I have family in Juarez, I have family in Camargo, uh, and my dad's originally from a small mining town called El Oro. And in that, t- in that time, um, my impressions and, and my appreciation for what my, 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 my father, my grandmother who, uh, who left Mexico and, and came to the United States, I have a sort of a, a deeper appreciation of, of what they experienced and what they went through. Um, I feel very indebted to uh, my grandmother. for uh, She's one of seven children, and only two of them have, have left Mexico, which is not to say that you have to, but, but that she wanted to. And so I feel that for me, my... As I get older, my, my, I have a sense of sort of, well, you have the sense of your identity, you have the sense of where you come from, you have the sense of family. And so for me, I feel that the root of my family is in Chihuahua, is in that mining town in El Oro. But then um, this summer I was in Paris, and I was with my wife in Paris, and I feel like, wow, like my family sort of starts in this small mining town, and here I am under the Eiffel Tower, mm-hmm. right? And that, that, that vastness, that experience is something that, that, that I want to put out there, that that is sort of a Chicano experience, right? That you sort of begin in one place, and you're <laughs> global, you know, I'm, I was in Europe, and who would have thought I was this kid in El Monte who was going to be in Paris? You, you, you talk about identity in Mexico in terms of family and culture and pride. I'm wondering whether you follow Mexico, uh, the, the news, whether are you, are, you, are you attuned to Mexico politically or economically, or is it mostly your connection through your family? I mean, does Mexico live, I mean, in some sense, some people, like if you're, if you're an immigrant, you're watching yeah. the news from Mexico every day. How close are you to sort of the everyday happenings? Of the- I think if for, for me, it's, it's through family, and I think the family is political. I think that what your family goes through um, is, is a result of politics. It shapes politics, right? Politics, and so I, rather than look at it on the broader scale, I can't say that I follow sort of the elections on a broad scale, but I do follow sort of the events of my family and my wife's family and the way that they're affected by the goings-on around them. I think the economic situation in the United States is linked to the economic situation in Mexico right now, and I think that, that we're, it's a difficult time for both countries as, as a result of that. And that, that I experience, I understand, through, through my families. Now, Dagoberto lives close in South Texas, and, and Victoria is pretty closer to the border. And I'm and wondering, and, and Texas has always had a more, in one sense, more brutal, and one sense, almost more intertwined relationship with Anglo's and Mexicans. Uh, uh, the, you know, there's there was a joke going around with George Bush was with Vicente Fox, and like, which one was which? Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, I, I wonder if you could tell, tell a little bit about being Mexican-American on the border and how it's different than what it is in being Mexican-American in, in, in L.A. and, and, and how, it, I mean, views toward, how the views toward Mexico diverge. You know, I used to be like most of us and think the border was, you know, living 
you know, Chula Vista or in El Paso. And, you know, living in El Paso, it's true, that is the border. I mean, you can't be any closer to the border than living in El Paso. But after I lived there, and I lived there, you know, 15 years, I realized that L.A. <laughs> was much closer to the border than El Paso. That people in El Paso had much less connection to the border and to Juarez. I mean, you know, kids would go to the party like kids would anywhere if they could. And, um, but the border is a strange idea that, um, I mean, it, I almost hate talking like this because I don't like people to do it, but <laughs> it, is, it is sort of not just that physical thing that is right there. You, you know, I can take you over to a, a part in, you know, part in, you know, where you can step on, you can be on either side. Your feet will be on either side. And it, it, it is the border, but, you know, if you're in El Paso, you're, you could be, you could be in a lot of places that are not the border, whereas in LA and, and where I am in Victoria, even let, let's talk about my neighborhood where I live now in Austin. I live in the Mexican part of, um, of Austin, and most, you know, all the real Mexicano Mexicans, the, the, I, I, it's always become uh, our way of talking, Mexicano Mexicans. I don't even know. Where, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, well, no, it's because everybody else is, every, we're all Mexicans, and then, you know, no, I mean the Mexicano Mexican. <laughs> anyway, um, um, over there, you know, they're, they're all in Austin, and may, we're talking about Mexico all the time, where they're from, how they, often they go back, you know, how they crossed, how they came over, what they're doing. It is, it's just a, it, isn't, it is not just that place. Now, there is this new border drug problem story that people are bringing up now, you know, it's like everything else you read about if you're not exactly there or even when I've been to Juarez, you know, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know. It's like how much is Obama, for instance? I mean, I love Obama, but I mean, does I really know what it's like? Is the country dramatically different really for me now or do I just think it? And I don't know. I can't really put my finger on it, but I do realize that I'm thinking it and I like thinking it, that it's better. But... So the, a lot of times people are talking about the border and the drug things and all this stuff's going on. I don't know, you know, how much it's the, the sort of Fox News talk of it is bigger than really what's going on for the people that are there. So I, I wonder, Dagoberto, over the, over the last 20 years, uh, official Mexico has taken on a, 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 a nicer attitude to us pochos. I mean, for many decades, this, you know, we were the, we were the, those of us and the families who left, we were the walking symbols of the failures of Mexico. And Mexico didn't often see us and greet us as warmly as they do now. Um, and in the last 30 years, the last 20 years, there has been this uh, rapprochement with me official Mexico with Mexican-Americans. Uh, Vicente Fox uh, made a remarkable speech about uh, a couple of weeks uh, after he had been elected here in Mexico. He gave it to the MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund in Los Angeles. And he, he said something remarkable. He said, he, he said, first of all, I want to acknowledge, and it was the first time a Mexican president had ever spoken so clearly and highly of immigrants. And he said, these people are heroes. And all we ask, and we don't, we don't want to make them feel bad. We want them to go. Yeah, do you remember the speech? It was remarkable. He says, we want them to go and dream the American dream. This is the president of Mexico. And he said, but don't forget us. And so there's always this notion that, that, that Mexico, there has been this market improvement of how Mexicans treat Mexican-Americans, how Mexican-Americans are treated in Mexico. But there's also this, this sense that some of the treatment is like, because sometimes now we have a little power. And now there's like this sense, hey, you know, don't forget us. When, he, when Vicente Fox said, don't forget us, he, he meant keep on sending cash. <laughs> so, th 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 <laughs> so I'm wondering if, if, if maybe, maybe you could speak to a little bit, either Michael or Daniel like to tackle that. Uh, well, I want to jump in. So we've talked about... Uh, immigration is sort of being California and Texas centric, and it's not like that. I think that the frontiers of immigration in the United States right now aren't in California. They're not in Texas. They're in Tennessee. They're in Georgia. They're in Michigan. They're in upstate New York. Um, that I think those those people are incredibly brave to me. 
I was in I was in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. I've been there a couple times now, but I was in Memphis, Tennessee, which is in the South in America, very white, white and black are sort of segregated from one another. And the first time I went, I was nervous. My wife, who's sitting in the back of the room, can attest to this. Um, I didn't feel comfortable until I came back and we landed in Phoenix, in Arizona, and I felt like this wave of relief that came <laughs> over because I was in Phoenix. But I had don't don't get me wrong, I had fun. I got to see Elvis's house. You know that was great. But I was there in front of this club in Memphis. And my wife and I were one of maybe three Latino people. Not Chicano, but Latino people. I have a friend that I made there who's from Cuba, whose family's from Cuba, right? And so we're standing in front of this club, and I know, that there's, I know that there's Mexican people here. I know that there are immigrants here, but I don't know where they're at, right? We couldn't find them because everybody was either white or everybody was black. And um, we were standing out in front of the clubs between bands, and a truck went by, right? Uh, una camioneta went by, and there was three guys sitting in there, and there was banda music coming out of the truck. My wife and I looked at each other. And we were like, "Yeah, like they're here," and but at the same time, while we were sort of sort of happy and rejoicing between ourselves, this white girl next to me goes, "Wrong music, asshole!" And that was sort of the attitude that they're encountering. And for me, like that's I think that's sort of the brave immigrant experience. So they go to, into that frontier. They go into that environment. Um, that to me is, is is what I think should be talked about. In addition to be talking about California, to talking that, about Texas. In, in that story, you you mentioned that your sort of your sympathies are on the side of the Mexicans and the, and the truck listening to banda. I'm wondering if if ever, and again, this, 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 the topic of this is how Mexican Americans view Mexico, and whether there were any instances in which you didn't feel take Mexico's side. And there are any instances in which you, you were reminded you're not Mexican in a national sense. You're, a, you're an American. Is there any, sense, there are any times in which Mexicans said, you're not one of us? Oh, that's like all the he time. He just hissed. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> wait, wait, did you hear what he said? Uh, I said all, all, all the time. I mean, that was sort of the 80s. And, and <laughs> that, was, that was the 80s was, was that largely that experience. Um, there, go ahead. You can go. Well, I, just, I mean, jumping in on that, I think that... Um, Mexican Americans do kind of everyday pick sides. I mean, I, I I think of kids that I knew in high school who were like into cheerleading and football and all that, and and they were Mexican American. You know, they had the the complete Spanish name, and that there were also kids who were really into doing like mariachi club, and you know, like the the ballet folklorico and all that. And so I think that the I guess the, one of the beauties of being Mexican American is that you can take those. You can you can pick you know from 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 the two sort of like mother cultures that you have the two parent cultures, and that also I think extends into like military service. I mean, there's a super long tradition of Mexican Americans fighting in 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 wars for the United States, and also in in investment. You know, there's also Mexican Americans who are like trying to do more business in Mexico, and I think another aspect of that is taking Mexican American culture to Mexico, where beyond remittances, Mexican American culture itself is embraced. And I'm talking about like hip-hop and Mexican-American rock, which I would include like at the drive-in, Mars Volta, like the kind of rockabilly look, the lowrider thing, all that hits all the kind of urban centers in Mexico and is embraced, you know, along with that buffer that Vicente Fox is talking about of, of sending us that money or was talking about. What's, what's interesting is that, and this makes the topic so rich, is that Daniel just 10 minutes ago described... Mexican Americanness as being not this and not that, yeah. and now he just put it in sort of that was sort of a negative terms, and now he just said, "But being it's beautiful because we get to pick." Well, I got it. Well, I, I, I wanted to go back because you asked me really quick. Just sort of, you asked about like, was, was there a moment when I was sort of not ex- accepted, yeah. right? Like I was sort of like called out as a, as a pocho, and I, I, I was thinking as you were answering, I have the precise moment. The precise moment happens to me uh, when I'm a sophomore in high school, and my sister's in seventh or eighth grade. And uh, I went to a high school that was, out, that was like 15 minutes away from my house, and my mom would drive me. I didn't have a license at that time. And so we would drop my sister off in front of that tiendita that I talked about at the opening of this talk. And my sister would get out, and she'd walk to school, and then my mom would drive me. Um, so we're going by one morning, and, and um, Bauhaus is on in the car, because that's I'm controlling the tape deck. Bauhaus is like this British um, goth band. And I was getting. like that? Uh, mom, no, mom didn't like Bauhaus. <laughs> um, uh, and so. Uh, I opened the door to get out of the car. I'm wearing, at this point, tight black jeans, a leather jacket, pointy black shoes. And my sister gets out to go to school. My sister's wearing, like, a short plaid skirt and, like, plaid stockings and monkey boots, like these punky, they call them monkey boots. And she has a Depeche Mode t-shirt on. And so this kid walks by. We're both getting out of the car, and he looks at us, and he just looks at us with a look of complete disgust. And he goes, pinche new wavers. 
<laughs> and and my sister sort of my sister and I looked at each other and laughed, and that became that my sister and I sort of had like a stormy relationship when we were kids, sibling rivalry kind of stuff, right? And that became a moment where we were like galvanized, like as this sort of force together. Um, and that was I mean that was that moment that you talked about. Like, that was like the most predominant one in my memory. I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, I just had two. I was thinking generationally. You know, first there was my mom's generation, and what. You know, the, the story of Mexico was you can't send any mail. You, there, this, all this bad, you know, she, the church, my mother was one of those that she was extremely Catholic, but she divorced. <laughs> and, um, and so then she had all these problems and she, you know, the church this and they take the money from the poor and in Mexico, all the poor are giving their money, the, all this horrible stuff I'd hear about all the time. Mexico this, Mexico that. Well, you know, okay, so there is that, and that was a generation that even relatives that would come up, they would say, God, I wish I could come here and you could mail me something from whatever the, I can't remember what the target of the day was, but I wish you could, Zodi, all those things. <laughs> well, then, then the next generation came along, and, and, you know, it was my generation more, it was the romanticized, the Aztec, and we, you know, Mexico had all these deities and these natural things that were, you know, so it's interesting. Yeah, it was all this romantic vision of what Mexico and the Aztecs did and how we all had to be like that and, you know. So where are we now? Again? Yeah, no, uh, well, I think we're hearing it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that as these, as the two countries kind of bleed like this, that they're opening, I think those cracks open experimentation and cultural experimentation where we're not identified primarily as being Mexican or me as Mexican-American, but as either new wavers or rockabillies or punks or cholos or footballers or cheerleaders or mariachi kids or whatever. And I think, you know, the young, the young people, I think, are kind of propelling that. And, um, and also our, our generation, I think, you know, growing up on, you know, not just Star Wars and Happy Days and whatever. I, for me, say by the Bell or whatever. But also, like knowing, I love you that, for admitting that, dude. <laughs> you know, my 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 middle school to high school was defined by Say by the Bell. It was, but I think also, you know, knowing about Selena, for instance, yeah. films like La Bamba, Zoot Suit, Born in East LA. I mean, all of those, especially I think particularly those films were I think huge and yeah. kind of allowing us to define ourselves as, as like you were saying, like being able to draw from both. But also I sometimes do see like the neither here nor there. So I'm right. still kind of on right. the, on I mean, the fence. It's, it's, uh, it, right. But the fact that you said them both means, I mean, it doesn't mean one's right or the other. I mean, the, now one of the things that's, that, again, it makes Daniel distinct is that he became a Mexican national last year. Well, that was like at the height, at the, like, the climax of the nightmare of the Bush era. And I was like, you know, I think I need another passport just in case. <laughs> Everything. So, so you weren't embracing Mexico. You were looking for an escape hatch. I, I think I was looking for global citizenship. And I think okay. the more passports we have, the better. Okay. Okay. I was hoping for something more poetic, but that's what we got. Uh, <laughs> So, Dagoberto, would you ever consider becoming a, a Mexican national? Has that a, have you ever thought of that? It could be, you're so close to Mexico. You're a Texan. You're almost there. Or, or a Texan uh, national. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, but, no, the Mexican thing, yes. And I've, I've had people tell me I should do that. But the problem is my mother was uh, illegitimate. And um, she doesn't know what her father and the birth certificate. All these things would have occurred. And I just don't think it could be done. I couldn't prove where she was born because she doesn't, she didn't know was kind of her issue, who was her dad, who was really her dad when she found out that the man, the grandfather that we were told was supposed to be, when she found out that wasn't a true story, it changed everything. So, but, but what I, I, you know, I'm going through my own, a Mexican period where I'd much prefer living in Mexico than where I do. Now, I, I do like that I have more money, <laughs> I, I, I admit that. And, and um, like I do notice that, well, I go to Mexico, but I can't afford the cab. And you know, I think, well, I don't know. I wonder if that's just because I've reached this stage of my life. I definitely like the Mexico that I can afford. And, um, and that is a difference. There is no difference. There is, I am definitely the Americano, and I like being the Americano, and, um, and being in Mexico. And right. Very cool with that. There's, yeah. There's no more, it's, you, you, at this point, you don't have to choose. You right. like, you're the Americano in Mexico. Right. Michael, have you ever, I mean, given Daniel's experience, have, has it ever crossed your mind? Have you ever thought about the, the, come, becoming a Mexican national? Uh, 
No, I mean, I because had, you could, right? Your Mexican, I your could, mother was yeah, Mexican born. Yeah, I could. I could. My father was uh, was born over there. I, I don't know. I feel part of me. It feels like 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 I'm not worthy of it. Like I feel that that that, that I like I said. I grew up in I grew up in California. I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, and and I mean, technically, I could do it, but I also have a respect for for that identity, and I feel that I would want to just sort of step into it and claim it so quickly. Like I think that that I just. Like I said, I have that connection, but 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 that's not my primary connection, and and I, I would, I would I would feel sort of like I'd be insulting someone to show off my Mexican passport, you know, it would, it, it, and I wouldn't want to do that. Um, which is not to disrespect Mexican culture, disrespect Mexico at all. It's, it's the opposite. I, I I have great respect for it. Daniel, U.S. plays Mexico in a, in a heated soccer <laughs> game. I want to know who did you root for, Daniel? Well, I. I <laughs> I did end up rooting for Mexico. I showed up in like a, I showed up in a in a blue T-shirt and green socks, so I could like play it both ways, depending on who won. Playing both sides. But I right. think, I mean, I think in the particular moment that this game that this game happened, it was like a World Cup World, World Cup qualifying match. Um, you know, Mexico has been hit with so many challenges in the past couple of years that, um, you know, this is like it was the Golden Cup of the moment. You know. And being in Mexico City for that experience, and, and you know, a lot of my friends went to that game at the Estadio Azteca, which is like a notorious stadium, and they were corralled. The American like corner was this like wedge of the stadium, and I I was like, good luck and Godspeed, because I don't know how he'll make it out of there alive. It was a it was an interesting day that day that um, a bunch of uh, American friends of mine and, and British friends of mine and, and, and expat friends of mine in, in Mexico City who were like. Yeah, Mexico. Yeah, let's you know the underdog. Let them win. You know the U.S. has dominated this rivalry in, in 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 recent years, and a bunch of other of, of of us were you know rooting for the U.S. And at first, I thought that would offend me, but um, you know through the course of the game, I thought you know this is sports, and you know it's like old gladiator squads or something. It was it was fun, and um, I was surprised by my own insistence. I think two minutes into the game, saying, "All right, Mexico, let's go." Three, you know. Michael, you have some. I want to talk about um, basketball. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge Lakers fan. I'm actually wearing a Lakers shirt under this shirt right now. Shirt. I'm so happy. I'll show, on, show you later. Show us the shirt. Uh, every every uh, around May, like Cinco de Mayo, the Lakers sort of do uh, this is Los Lakers shirt that I have on here, and they do sort of like they they wear like Los Lakers we uniforms. Can't see it, dude. Oh, no, the camera is. Oh, I don't know. I want to talk about basketball, and so. Um, and and I'm 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 a born and bred Lakers fan. I grew up like in the '80s when the Lakers were, were Showtime and all that, and the Lakers are great now, which is sort of lucky for us. But um, there's always there was for a period a couple of years ago there was always sort of a tricky game, and the tricky game was Lakers versus Dallas. And the reason why Lakers versus Dallas was a tricky game is because there's a guy who played for Dallas at the time at that time named Najera Eduardo Najera who was from Chihuahua. And so, like, I was rooting, of course, for the Lakers, but any time, like, Najera got the ball, I'd be like, yeah, Dick, do something. And, if, and if, if Najera got a rebound, like, I was like, yeah, like, like Chihuahua got a rebound. Like, I was so excited. And by, by extension, that. so did you. Yeah, yeah no, it, it was absolutely like that. It was absolutely like that. I mean, so, I mean, uh, I feel like I said that's sort of me playing both sides there, but that was, that's, that's, that's what I wanted to say. So, <laughs> so it's interesting. This, this notion of playing both sides. It's this notion of you know picking and choosing, or, or neither, none of the above. And this is all part of the Mexican experience. And this is something that you well, negotiate in your writing every day. Well, I mean, and your life. Go ahead. I want to say that the, the, the current the current sort of version of this, and it's not a true version because he's from Spain, but the Lakers have Pau Gasol now, like, or, or Gasol, right? And so we listen. My my brother in law and I. We listen to the, the game in, on the radio sometimes, and we love le- hearing the post-game interviews. And the post-game interviews, his questions get asked in Spanish, and we look at each other, we're like, yeah. <laughs> like that, cause, and it's, just, it's, this, it's this level of, of sort of, not everybody knows what's being asked at that moment, right? Like, like, everybody else who's listening to this game in L.A. County, the millions of Lakers fans that are in L.A. County don't know what's happening for 10 seconds, right? And, but <laughs> my brother and I do. And we look at each other, and, and for that moment in time, you're, you're like a part of this club. Right, right. I, I I heard this story. I don't I don't know how true it is, but that when he got traded to the Lakers, he went to take his physical, and that after he took his physical, he, his first stop was In and Out, which is like a hamburger place. And when he walked in, like all the sort of the Latino people in In and Out recognized him and gave him a standing ovation because they were so happy that he was here. <laughs> On that fantastic note, uh, we're going to take Q, uh, some questions, but I'd like to to thank Daniel and Michael and Dagoberto. Please give them a hand. Thank you. 
Uh, I also came, I was born in Los Angeles, not Mexican-American, but now live in Mexico City. So also escaped a little of the Bush regime by moving here. Um, but I wanted to, you know, something that I've noticed in terms of the possibility of a Mexican-American identity, that's only possible in the U.S. Like they, you know, the U.S. is over-eager to hyphenate your identity. You know, you, you cross over as a 50-year-old woman who has lived in El Oro or whatever for her whole life, Mexican-American, you know. And coming here, like, nobody's ever going to call me American-Mexican. Like, and, I, and, <laughs> and I'm never, you know, and that's not something that, that I ever think of being or, like, that I strive to be or anything, just because it's not an a possible identity. And I wanted to know if you think that's changing with all the people who, because of la crisis económica, are coming back to Mexico? Like, are we going to see more hybrid identities, not only in the U.S., but in Mexico as well? Elizabeth Wade. <laughs> Daniel, why don't you go yeah, ahead? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Mexican Spanish is being bombarded right now with all these Americanisms. And I think you hear that. You, if you go out just a couple blocks here in Guadalajara, you can hear that. I mean, the connection that Jalisco specifically has to, um, to the United States is so strong. And so I think that um, at least I'm definitely seeing that. I'm seeing that in, in journalism and in media in Mexico. There is more an allowance and a propensity for, um, for Mexican media outlets, you know, who were once like these stoic guardians of, of Castilian, right? Now allowing things like El Makeover or Mexico's Next Top Model. And so these are like uh, complete Americanisms in the same way that Mexicanisms are bleeding into the U.S., Americanisms are bleeding this way. So I think that, that would make it a possible identity at, at some point, I think. Well, just, I wanted to add, I, I was in Monterrey about a year and a half ago. Um, I, I was invited by the U.S. consulate to speak to Mexican audiences, and it tripped me out. I mean, Monterrey was, I mean, first of all, you go to the, the museum there, the new museum of the, of the Northeast, and it, you, and it puts Texas in the Northeast region of Mexico, and this integrated notion that you would never have that in Texas. Um, you know, Mex Texaco, it was Texas, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, it was a trip. And then going around, especially to the elites in Monterrey, it, it's all Spanglish. ¿Quieres tomar un drink este weekend? You know, antes de ir a Brownsville? You know, and everybody shopped. And, 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 shopping. It, 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 shopping. It, it was pretty phenomenal. So in some regions, I mean, I, that's the most Americanized place in Mexico I've ever been. It was really sort, of, sort, of, sort of astonishing. Hi, um, I'm Leslie Tejas. Um, I was in a panel earlier, um, it was a Q&A with Cheech Marin, and there was a discussion about um, labels, uh, Mexican-American, Chicano, and um, I just found it really interesting, and I'm curious as to whether you have a specific opinion about what you like to be called, what you think about Mexican-American versus Chicano, how you identify yourself, and why. The first thing I want to say there is that is I want you to Cheech to pay me back that five dollars he owes me. Being Cheech, you know, I, I just started a cultural center. <laughs> I just started a cultural center. Me and a, a, a journalist, Macarena Hernandez, and we went through this. Like, what do we use, Chicano? Now, the reason I'm having a little trouble with Chicano these days is because of the slash, <laughs> you know, slash A and all that stuff. I'm like, oh, my God. Explain that to us. Oh, you, you have to be a Chicano slash A or a Chicana slash O. You, put that you know, you, you have put to put that, that yeah. so that you can cover both sides <laughs> of, the, the, of the sex. Yeah, and you have to go through all this stuff. It just drives, and I'd say, well, you could just call, let's, I'll be a Chicana from now on. Just let me use Chicana. I'll be a Chicana. And let's just skip it. And I'll use the word. Well, they didn't go for that. They thought I was being sarcastic or something. So, uh, you know, but then there's the other aspect, and it's really interesting in Texas, in the, in the Rio Grande Valley, which is it's puro Mexico, but it's, uh, it's, it's the most Americanized Mexico, more than Monterrey. <laughs> and, I mean, there, there is practically 99% of the people are Spanish-speaking Mexican-American people. And they use the word Hispanic. I hate the word Hispanic, but 
I know they're, they don't, they don't even, it doesn't, I, I, I always think it's like a lozenger, and that if you suck it long enough, no matter what, some, it's a Republican word. <laughs> that came from Nixon. You've got to be careful. When you say that word, you will become a Republican. <laughs> now, if you, you know, but anyway, and you'll notice that Republican Latinos use Hispanic a lot, you know, but anyway, the, the truth is, around Texas, it's a red state. Like it or not, I have to deal with the red state. And is Chicano, I mean, there's a whole generation of young immigrant Mexican, Mexicano Mexicans, (laughs) who really don't know what Chicano is. That you ask, you can ask a group of young kids, you know, are you a Chicano? They don't even know what you're talking about. And I realize that the word is just, it doesn't exist. You have to educate them what it means. And they don't understand the movement. They don't understand the music. They don't. So I went with Mexican-American in our center. And it's very difficult to write anything because I want to use the word Chicano. I I like the word Chicano. And, and, you know, I get attacked from every angle. But still, anyway, Mexican-American has been the way I've been dealing with. Now, the only thing I don't like about Latino, which I do like, I like it when I'm in the East Coast, but around here it's odd, and really in the West it's odd, because really when you talk about Latino, they, they talk about Latino in the East Coast, even though the LA Times does it, which always just drives me crazy, but whatever. Um, in the East Coast, there, there are Latinos, because it is a conglomerate of people, you know, Dominicans, there's Puerto Ricans, there's, you know, et cetera. But really, when we're talking about the demographics of the Latinos in the United States, we're talking about 70% are Mexican-American. And our history of the United States is Mexican-American. We are, and I'm now my, lap, my little speech, the sort of invisible history of the South. It's as if we lived in the South with, and we're the black people, but they somehow have eliminated the discussion of the black people. In the Southwest, where we are, I'm really, we do not exist in history. We are the black people, and we don't exist in their history. They can come, Cormac McCarthy can come to the Southwest and say, nobody's written here, it's about cowboys and Indians. Cormac McCarthy, the greatest writer in the, of the Southwest, the most popular writer of the day, he lived in El Paso for like 10 or 15 years, I mean, El Paso's like 90% Mexican-American, and he could live in a little Anglo ghetto, which is rich, and not see Mexican-Americans, and, and actually in a public square say that the Southwest is about cowboys and Indians. Buenas noches, soy Leonor Pacheco López. Yo experimenté que de chica nos llevaban a Estados Unidos para conocer Disneylandia, y es muy diferente porque cuando ya viví Allá entre, tenía un empleo en Culiacán, pero tenía que pasar temporadas en Tucson, Arizona. Uh-huh. En el Pantano 2 vivía. Uh-huh. Por cierto, era vecina, no lo… de Fox, uh-huh. <ríe> antes de ser gobernador de acá de Guanajuato. Y resulta que es diferente, porque cuando nos llevaban a pasear, bueno, dos semanas y ya. Y empecé a extrañar, bueno, primero me gustó Tucson porque tiene un área bancaria que se parece a la unidad administrativa aquí de Guadalajara. Aunque yo vivía en Guadalajara y se me figuraba que andaba acá. Pero lo que sí empecé a extrañar porque, pues uno tiene su idiosincrasia diferente. En primer lugar, católica, media hora en automóvil para ir a un templo católico. Bueno, luego la comida. Se nos pasaba la cuaresma en meter al congelador y sacar el pescado y y los camarones, y siendo que aquí está un acostumbrado fresco. Las verduras, pues a veces nos dábamos el lujo de que nos las llevaran de la compañía en avión neta privada para poder consumirlas, porque pues no, no nos sabían igual, fíjense, cuando hacían de comer en la casa. Si salíamos a comer, pues me gustaba más la comida oriental, como que estaba más sabrosa, porque la italiana sí me sabía precocida. O no será que tiene uno, pues, va en los gustos, ¿verdad? Sí. Pero la gente sí, muy amable. Y llegábamos saludando en inglés, mi sobrinita y yo y los niños, y nos contestaban en español, así es. <risa> en el Tucson Mall, en el… Pues todas las tiendas que hay, Victoria's Secret y todo. 
Y tuvimos buenas amistades hasta la fecha. Yo trabajo en enseñanza e investigación de los hospitales civiles y les mando emails a los médicos del Hospital San José donde nos veían y otro hospital que no recuerdo el nombre, que está en inglés. Y sí vienen a los avances de medicina. ¿eh? Conozco también a los de Stanford, California, tengo mucho contacto. Y para mí siempre fueron personas muy amables, pero yo la diferencia era, pues en ir a misa, fíjese en domingo y que ya era la última y nos faltaba 15 minutos. Y digo, para que empezara la misa y duraba media hora el automóvil en llegar, pero creo que ahora ya hay eh, capillas por ahí cerca del pantanudo. Y una pregunta, quiero ver si… Pues más que pregunta, me gustaría que, que tuvieran comida más fresca. A ver, tenemos tiempo para una pregunta más. Hi, my name is Marco Polo. So as you said, Dagoberto, you are not only Mexican-American, but also Latino. Latino, you mm -hmm. all form part of that community. Uh, in a more social and political line, uh, from, from your point of view, how do you relate to, to this big social movement sponsored by Latinos looking for their rights to be heard? How do you relate to those who are not within the um, government's agenda, you know, in terms of um, a new immigration policy and all this stuff against terrorism, you know, and uh, because sometimes it's used like a, a pretext to pursue some communities. So how do you relate to this social movement? How do we relate to the immigrant, immigrant rights movement? Well, I, per, personally, I see it. I mean, I mean, I was at the big marches in 06, and I, many of you probably were there. I saw the news coverage, and I, I, like a lot of people, I was astounded by, by the agency, I think, that immigrants took, who undocumented workers in the U.S. took, um, to sort of establish their presence and say they were here and, and all that. But I, but I don't see it as my, as my movement. And I and I don't think Mexican I don't think it's a movement that that belongs necessarily to Mexican Americans and and I think right. going to your to your question Leslie about um, the difference between Chicano Latino and what label should we use Mexican American I mean I think that the Chicano movement um, is something that is a is a is a historical thing and now the movement I think that defines the Mexican experience in the United States is the immigrant rights movement, which, which I consider an urgent one. Having said that, I don't think Chicano, the term Chicano is a dead term. I, I think that, I mean, the people who have, um, um, people in, in, in certain settings and in certain institutions that have a very rigid kind of stance on, on, on the sort of the nationalistic reading and the gender reading of the Chicano term, um, I, I, I don't think it belongs exclusively to them. I don't have a problem with the word Chicano, and I don't have a problem with the word Mex the label Mexican American, or e or even with Latino. I think it depends on the context, and I think it just depends on you know um, what 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 people say to you. I, I can tell you that in in Mexico City, when I'm around Mexico City elites, I'll tell you know I'm from San Diego. My parents are from Tijuana. I worked in LA. Oh, so you're Chicano. You know, or, or if I'm like in, in a more working class setting or a familiar setting right. and I tell them the exact same thing, it'll be like, oh, you're a pocho. And it's like, yeah, cool. Well, let's eat or whatever. You right. know? What, what does one thing I, I wanted to add about the, the immigrant marches and, and you put it in context in the word Chicano and Chicano as we knew it initially was a countercultural movement. And what was so striking about the integration marches, the, the marches of 2006, where Mexicans have had a history of going to the United States and saying, I'm going to come here for a couple weeks. I'm going to go to Disneyland. I'm going to work and get some money to go buy a rancho back. And they don't go back. So what happened was, and, and the general rule of thumb with sociologists is that, you know, they'll, they'll say that till they're 60. I'm going to go back. But they won't go back as soon as their children become adolescents. Mm -hmm. Then it's hard to get them back. So what happened was for 100 years of Mexican migration, this ambivalence, this sense that I'm going home didn't prepare the kids to be American, because the ambivalence of the, of, the, of the parents put the burden on the second generation to say, 
They had to become Americans and no one was guiding them. But what this march, these marches did was to demand rights and demand rights as Americans, which changed the history of Mexican immigration to the United States. Those were astonishing marches for that reason. They weren't countercultural. They weren't about saving culture. They were about rights as American citizens. And they were striking, and I think they're historic, and I think that in that sense, and you're right, Chicano's not dead. It just changes meaning. But the new movement is about the right, not a, it's not about pulling away or being counter, it's about being part of and demanding to be accepted as Americans. And the flag that was being waved predominantly was the American Absolutely, flag, particularly yeah. among the, the recent immigrants and right. the young kids. Right.